स्वामी निखिलानंद इज अ डिसाइपल ऑफ जगत गुरु श्री कृपालुजी महाराज ही रिजाइड्स एट राधा माधव धाम इन ऑस्टिन टेक्सस व्हिच इज द यूएस आश्रम ऑफ जगत गुरु कृपालु परिषद ही ट्रैवल्स अमेरिका प्रीचिंग द फिलॉसफी ऑफ सनातन धर्म एज थॉट बाय श्री कृपालुजी महाराज इन दिस सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स स्वामी निखिलानंद एक्सप्लेन्स द थ्री पाथ्स टू गॉड कर्म ज्ञान एंड भक्ति He reveals the scriptural teachings behind each path and tells which path is the best one to follow. This is a series of speeches that I've been giving which comprises the essence of Sanatan Dharma and this particular section which I've been giving this year is on the three paths to God but I actually began this series last year during last year's Ramayan Pat. So it's really a two-part series totaling a month. So let me give you a brief review of what I covered last year because we need to keep that in mind to understand the importance of what I'm telling you this year. So I'll just briefly cover the main points. We started by taking one Vedic mantra. Tameva viditvati mrityumeti nanya pantha vidyate yanaya. It's from Shvetashvatropanishad. And it means that only by knowing him can he cross over it. So who is the one who has to be known? Who is the one who has to know him? And what is that which must be crossed over? In fact, in this verse, Veda is referring to the three eternal tattva. A tattva is something that exists forever. And there are only three such things. God, souls, and maya. So he who must be known is God. The one who must know him is the individual soul. And that which must be crossed over is maya. Only by knowing God can a soul cross over maya. Nanya pantha vidyate yanaya. There is no other way. There is no other way. So it means that we individual souls have to attain God. We also learned that only when we're given a human birth do we have even the opportunity to consider that. Even if we're born as celestial gods in swarg, they don't have a chance to perform actual karma so they don't have a chance to progress spiritually or do bhakti or even try to attain god so only when we're born as human do we get a chance to try to follow the path to god if we don't attain god in this life we don't know how many more lifetimes it will be before we get another chance as human because <clears throat> having been born as human does not guarantee you a human birth in your next life it's according to our karma so according to karma we could go anywhere for any number of lifetimes before god gives us another chance to be born as human so we have to try to find god in this life we also learned why that is our nature to desire god that every soul automatically desires god because god is bliss you see every soul desires happiness that much we know 
But why do we desire happiness? Because God is perfect happiness and we are his anch. Anch means a part of him. Not a part of him like a piece of him that's broken off, but a part meaning we're part of his power. He has one Jeev Shakti, that's one of the three eternal tattva, and Jeev Shakti is made up of uncountable souls. So we're a part of that, and he gives life to all of us, so we have a connection with God. And since he's perfect happiness, we automatically desire such happiness. Not any kind of happiness, mind you, that kind of happiness which is personified happiness, divine happiness, God, which is unlimited in amount and lasts forever. Only such happiness could make a soul happy forever. Someone could also say that we desire to avoid unhappiness, we desire to be free from suffering, but that's included in attaining happiness. It's true that if someone is freed from maya, then they're free from all suffering. But you don't have to make liberation from maya your goal. You can just make attaining God your goal and you're automatically free from maya. You'll get unlimited bliss and you'll automatically be free from all suffering. So this is the ultimate goal of every soul. So every soul is automatically, naturally desiring God from their soul, even if their mind is confused and thinks that they don't desire God, yet their soul only wants God. And that is evidenced by the fact that everybody desires happiness, and happiness is just another name for God. So we need to know God. But then after that, we went into the scriptures and I explained to you that the same scriptures that tell us we need to know God, tell us that God cannot be known. So we inquired as to why. <clears throat> and we learned that God cannot be known by someone with a material intellect because God is divine. So our mind, our intellect, our senses... They're all material, so we can only perceive material things. We can only understand material things, and that too only to a certain level of subtlety. We can't understand everything about this world. Then how could we think we could understand everything about the maker of this world? We, as scientists, haven't even figured out how to make, if someone's hair goes gray... I mean, other than dyeing it artificially, but could, you, could a scientist make someone's hair regain its color without dyeing it? Just start growing as its natural color again? No, no one can do that. So imagine, we haven't even been able to understand one single hair. How are we going to understand the one who's behind all of this amazing creation? So God cannot be known, no matter how intelligent someone is, no matter how much logic they apply, God is beyond our intellect. However, we did learn that that's okay. We can still know God through God's grace. Those who receive God's grace can know God because God makes himself known to them. And that grace is received through surrender. So grace is not a, 
random thing. Receiving the grace of God is dependent on our own surrender. And when we surrender, God graces us with divine mind and divine senses. So with that, we can perceive him and we can know him. And then we attain perfect divine bliss and freedom from suffering. However, in order to become surrendered, we have to think about what does that mean? Surrender is from the mind. It's the mind that has to be surrendered. However, our mind is already surrendered to the world. So what does that form of surrender look like? It means that we have full faith of finding happiness from this world. That is the form of surrender, the practical form of surrender. So we're already surrendered to the world because we have full faith, 100% faith of finding happiness from this world. Yet we keep failing. I don't mean the uh, temporary fleeting happiness that we experience every day. That's just fleeting pleasure. It's not real happiness. Real happiness should last forever and make you perfectly satisfied. So even though we do have faith of finding that kind of happiness from the world, yet we've never done it. And the scriptures tell us that that kind of happiness is only in God. But we don't have 100% faith in that fact, which is why we're not 100% surrendered to God. So how to make this transition? Gradually. And as part of that, I explained to you in detail the nature of the world. That the world gives the attraction it attracts our mind and it gives a promise of happiness but it never fully delivers so if we are able to understand and accept this fact that the happiness of the world is an illusion the world is not an illusion it's real but the happiness that we hope to find in the world is a mirage it's just out of our reach every time we reach a goal Happiness seems to have moved a little farther ahead of that goal that we reached. So then we set our sights a little further ahead and we say, maybe if I get this, I'll find true happiness. But it never materializes. It's a mirage that we keep running after but never catching. So if we understand the true nature of worldly happiness, then we can start to take our faith from there and put it in God where it's meant to be. If anyone has 100% faith in God, they get happiness immediately. We have 100% faith in the world, yet we've never found that happiness. So just understanding this one point can start the process of transferring our surrender from the world towards God. So as part of that process, I explain that it's important to have the guidance of a true saint. So I define for you what a saint is. That a saint is someone who has already attained God. And such a saint can guide other souls to find God. Along that same line, I explained how to recognize a saint 
how the saint actually helps the souls both externally and internally by gracing them with more affinity for God and helping them transfer their attachment from the world to God. And then after that, we came to the actual path to God because a true saint has to show us the path. So I told you that although I am not a God-realized saint, all of the information that I'm sharing with you in this series, I learned from a God-realized saint, and I'm doing my best to pass that on to you. So at this point, we need to understand the actual path to God. The path to God involves following some process that helps us transfer our attachment from the world to God. So we learn that there are three paths to God. Karma, Gyan, and Bhakti. Just like there are three Khand, three major sections of the Vedas, there are three eternal paths to God. The path of action, the path of knowledge, and the path of devotion. So first we looked at the path of karma, and I explained to you that karma means good action. And although good action is good, good action does not result in God-realization. Because surrender to God results in God-realization. 100% surrender. So good action on its own is rewarded by having a good destiny in the next life or even getting to go to Swarg temporarily. But it keeps you under Maya, within this field of Maya, taking birth after birth, birth after death after birth after death, in this field of limited happiness. So we don't attain perfect happiness nor freedom from Maya just by following the path of karma. But if that karmi surrenders his mind to God, then he is called a karma yogi. And a karma yogi attains God. Not because of his karma, but because of his surrender. So in other words, he added bhakti. He added surrender. So think of it like this. You added amrit to water, and you drank it, and you became immortal. Or you just drank straight amrit and you became immortal. So the fact that the water was there, it doesn't really matter. It just happened to be there. Similarly, it's the bhakti that gives you God-realization. If you add bhakti to good karma, that's fine. But it's not the good karma that gives God-realization. It's the fact that the bhakti is there. Then we moved on to the path of Gyan and we found a very similar thing. I told you first of all that there are two types of Gyan. There is theoretical knowledge and then there is experience, experiential knowledge, both in the world and in the spiritual world. So we left the talk of worldly knowledge aside and we just looked at spiritual knowledge. And we saw that if someone merely studies the scriptures and gains any level of knowledge from low to high or even becomes a great scholar of Sanskrit and knows Vedas and Gita or Darshan Shastras, such a scholar only has a theoretical knowledge 
And that knowledge is meant to be applied and turned into experience. We have to follow the path told in the scriptures, not just know what's in the scriptures. Knowing what's in the scriptures is of no use unless we practically apply it. So we find that our scriptures actually criticize those who only gain a theoretical knowledge and praise those jnanis who actually put that knowledge into practice by developing surrender to God. Then we saw that that experiential knowledge is also of two kinds. Atmagyan, knowledge of the self, the soul, and Brahmagyan, knowledge of God. The path of Gyan on its own can take one up to Atmagyan only, unless he then surrenders to God. So the Gyani who adds Bhakti, meaning surrender to God, becomes a Gyan Yogi. Then he can be liberated from Maya. But comparing the path of Gyan to the path of Bhakti, we saw that the path of Gyan has a very difficult qualification. You have to be very highly evolved spiritually just to qualify. You have to have total control over your mind. Even if one does qualify for the path of Gyan, he has to walk that path without the protection of God's grace because he is surrendering to formless God and formless God does not grace because formless God does not do anything. Even if he were to succeed in following the whole path over many lifetimes, what would he attain? Atmagyan. Then what would he have to do? He would have to surrender to any personal form of God to receive his grace to get liberated from Maya. Then, even after having accomplished that, his experience is only up to experiencing the bliss of formless God, which I showed you through many examples of history, is missing something that is present in the bliss of the personal form of God. Some of the examples I told you about, like King Janak or Sanakadik Paramahans, it showed that those saints who are already absorbed in the bliss of formless God, if they were exposed to the bliss of the personal form of God, they would abandon. It wasn't even a conscious decision. Their mind was drawn to the bliss of the personal form of God and they forgot about the bliss of formless God. So in the end, the Gyani only gets liberation. He doesn't experience the ras of Premanand from the personal form of God. So after understanding all of that, we knew and understood that bhakti is supreme. Both karma and jnana depend on bhakti for their followers to even reach the ultimate goal. So then we started to look at bhakti specifically. And we saw that bhakti is also of two kinds. Siddha bhakti and sadhana bhakti. Siddha bhakti is a divine power of God. That's the power which is sought after by those great jnanis and yogis and which is easily attainable by any bhakti. However, to receive that divine power, that divine bhakti, which is also called prem, 
we have to become qualified. And to become qualified, it means that we have to purify our heart. So the means of purifying our heart is by practicing sadhana bhakti. So sadhana bhakti purifies the heart, and when it's fully purified, we receive siddha bhakti, the divine power of divine love. I also told you that sadhana bhakti leads to bhav bhakti. So sadhana bhakti means the effort we make to attach our mind to God. And when the mind starts to get attached to God and you start to enjoy a feeling of affinity for God that just wells up naturally in your heart, that is called bhav bhakti. And that goes on increasing right up until complete heart purification. Then we receive siddha bhakti or prema bhakti. So from that point we focused on sadhana bhakti because that's the bhakti we have to do. And we learned that our scriptures describe several conditions that have to be observed in order to successfully practice bhakti. The first one being that we should not ask God for any worldly thing. If we are doing so, then our mind is not on the right goal. We're in fact asking him for more of the same thing which has never satisfied us. We're asking him for more mirages. So we need to ask him for the real thing. We need to ask him for his divine bhakti. That's the only thing I'm asking you for. I'm not even asking you for liberation. Because if I attain liberation, see what happens, those jnanis who attain formless God, they get liberated. They remain in their body for the rest of whatever they were destined to live. Let's say they became liberated at age 40, but they were destined to live to age 60. So they stay on this earth for another 20 years. And during that 20 years, they enjoy the bliss of formless God, we call Brahmanand, which is unlimited. But they are only enjoying that based on the fact that they still have a mind. Then once they leave their body, they also leave their mind behind and they merge into formless God and now they have no means of experiencing that bliss into which they've merged. So, on the path of bhakti, we don't even ask for liberation. Although we know it's included, if you attain God's divine love, liberation is included. However, we don't ask for it because if we ask for it, that is all we will get. So the first condition is not to ask God for not even any worldly thing, but not even liberation. The second condition was that we should love God without any any kind of condition attached. Meaning we should love him selflessly. Just because he is ours and we belong to him. That's the only reason. In fact, out of these two, I belong to you and you are mine. Even there's a distinction made between the two. See, both are a form of relationship. You are mine. That, may, that feels good, right? If you feel that someone belongs to you. And if you belong to someone, that also feels good. 
So you giving yourself to someone means you belong to them, and them giving themselves to you means they belong to you. So saints have said that the first one is a higher feeling, that I give myself to you, I am yours. Whether you give yourself to me or not, doesn't matter, I am yours forever. That is selfless bhakti. We have to try to develop those feelings and feel like we want to love Krishna for his happiness. Although we have nothing that he needs, yet that feeling should still be there, that I want to serve you. I want to do something for your happiness and I'm giving myself to you, but I'm not demanding anything in return. The third condition is that bhakti is independent and should not be combined with any other practice in an overbearing way. Meaning that bhakti doesn't have to be supplemented by any other spiritual practice. If you're practicing bhakti, you don't need to do any other practice. But if you do something else like karma or yoga or whatever you're doing, it can be there but in a subservient way to bhakti, not as the main thing but just as something you do incidentally. For instance, you may do yoga for good health or you may do good karma in order to carry out your physical duties, but you know that that is not the path to God. It's something that you do incidentally since you have a physical body, so you have to do some actions like that in the world as well. Now, the fourth condition we came to yesterday, that we should not try to worship God as supreme God. So I explained that this is actually important because we want to try to develop a relationship with God. That's part of bhakti is feeling affinity. Like if, uh, you know, we see the kids playing around the mandir here, little kids. So everybody admires those kids and says, oh, they look so cute, so charming, so innocent, so beautiful at that age. So, so many people are admiring those kids, but the one to whom they belong, the mother or father, when they look at that child, there's something more, right? We, we admire kind of like, oh yes, it's nice, but they feel a real connection, like this child is mine. That's affinity that comes because of a knowledge of a relationship. So we want to have that affinity for God. However, if we think of him as God, we can't have that affinity because then we think, well, he's God and I'm just a soul. How could I have a relationship with him? So saints tell us that we should adopt one of four bhav, although there are five, but we leave shant bhav aside. Yesterday I explained to you that out of shant Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, and Madhurya, Shantabhav is the most distant feeling of relationship. It's the feeling that God is the king and we are subjects. So we didn't spend much time on that. We said we want to be closer than that. So we went straight to Dasya Bhav. Dasya Bhav means thinking that I am his servant and he is my loving master. So you have quite a close relationship when you're someone's servant. 
not uh, and in this case it's not like an enforced servitude or or the way where you serve someone because you want to get paid like we do when we work for others in the world this is just like a servitude out of love because you want to serve him and please him so this is dasya bhav and although it leads to great closeness yet there are also many restrictions associated with dasya bhav because a servant does have to observe quite a few formalities with his master So I explained that there's another one that brings you closer. If you love God, see this is about our own feelings. When you do bhakti, you remember that it's all about what's going on inside. So that's why we don't ask him for anything. We just want to develop the feeling of relationship. So one is the feeling that I am your servant. So I'm not thinking of you as God even though I know you're God I'm thinking of you as my master and I'm your servant. But the next closer relationship is thinking of him as a friend and this is quite a bit closer if you think about it. Two friends think of each other as equals and they have very little formality. And I gave you some examples of how intimate Krishna's relationship was with his Gwalbal friends. Yet there is still some formality that remains even between friends. If two friends are talking and the mother comes in the room and says uh, to her son that I have something important to talk to you about. then he may indica- indicate to his friend that you know this is a family matter you need to go outside so that i can talk to my mother there are some things in the family that you don't even share with a friend so the relationship between mother and child or father and child is even closer than friend to friend and we have the ability and the permission from god himself that we can adopt that relationship with him i explained to you that uh, the reason krishna comes on this earth planet is actually to reveal such leelas to give us an idea how we could relate to him i told you that the dasya bhav and sakya bhav saints that you know about from ram's leelas and krishna's leelas those are not ordinary souls like you and i they are saints but we can aspire to attain their position see those saints come with god when he comes on the earth planet so all of krishna's sakhas mother yashoda nanda baba the gopis all of them were descended saints they exist and live with god permanently in the divine world and they come with him on this world or they come before him and then he comes it's all pre-planned so why do they do that when the same leelas could be happening in the divine world and they could be enjoying the rasas of those leelas over there they don't have to come here to perform those leelas all those leelas are happening eternally Any saint can see and experience any leela at any time. He just has to think and he's in it. The leela is happening. 
How do you think Surdas Ji described all those Leelas of Krishna? He just closed his eyes and he sang what he was seeing right in front of him. How do you think Valmiki wrote the Ramayan before Ram's avatar? <laughs> because those Leelas of Ram are eternal. He just saw them happening and he wrote the Ramayan. But those saints come here with Ram and with Krishna to reveal these Leelas so we have some material to do devotion with and so we get an idea how we can love God. So we know, you know, otherwise Sakya, Sakya Bhav is just a word to us. But now we have Leelas, like some of the ones I described yesterday. Oh, if I'm Krishna's Sakha, I could think of being with him like this. So in Vatsalya Bhav also we have many Leelas that show us the greatness and by greatness I mean by how close it brings you to Krishna if you adopt this Vatsalya Bhav. Take an example. Maya is saying to a young Krishna probably five, six years old Krishna Tvam Pathakim Pathami Nanure Shastram Kimugyayate. Oh Krishna, I think it's time for you to start studying. Study? What should I study, Mother? The Shastras, the Vedas, you know, the holy scriptures. Krishna says, why should I study them? What do I, who do I have to know by, or what do I have to know by studying that? Oh, you can know about God. Who is she talking to? She, remember what I told you, that the prem, the, that power of bhakti, makes God forget he's God and makes the soul forget he's a soul. So mother has no consciousness. Although you can say she's a saint, so does she not know Krishna's God? Yes, she knows Krishna's God. But in the same way, like I gave you that example yesterday, the mother of a Supreme Court judge does not think of him as a judge. He's my son. That's all she knows. That's how she can still scold him. The rest of the world trembles before him and she's scolding him. So similar, similarly, Mother Yashoda has no consciousness of Krishna being God because her mind is drowned in that loving relationship that he is my son. That's it. And Krishna is also drowned in that same premras. So he is not pretending. He's actually, he's lost consciousness of the fact he's God. And since this soul, this saint is loving him as her own child, it's Krishna's law that he will love you the same way in return. So he only knows this much that I am her son. That's it. So she's telling him, you have to study the scriptures and learn about God. Oh, mother, why should I learn about God? Well, if you learn about God, you'll get detachment from this world. So why do I want to be detached from the world, mother? Well, if you get detached from the world, then you can get liberation. Liberation? She said, yeah, you can get mukti. Mukti? 
Well, mother, I don't know what this mukti is, but uh, it doesn't sound very interesting to me. You know, I just like to eat curd and sometimes break the gopis pots and that's what I like. I'm not interested in this liberation, this mukti. So you see the innocence. There's a sweetness in such leelas, which you compare that to Supreme God sitting on his asana as Mahavishnu. It's the same Krishna who sits as Mahavishnu and you can admire from a distance and praise him. Sahasrashirka Puruka Ityadi. We sing Stuti to him, right? So you could do that and admire him from a distance. But where's the sweetness? That sweetness is restricted to the extent the devotee is conscious of the fact he's God and Krishna is conscious of the fact he's God. And to the extent that is overwhelmed or drowned in that prema bhakti, to the same extent the madhurya keeps growing. See, one time Maya was nursing Krishna, he was drinking milk, and she had put some milk also on the stove to boil because she was going to make curd. Now she was sitting and nursing Krishna and then she heard that the milk was boiling over. So she just quickly jumped up and put Krishna down and went and took the milk off the stove. But Krishna was not happy about being jolted like that. And just like sometimes little children have that uh, a little streak of anger in them. So Krishna showed that in this Leela. He was feeling angry that mother just, I was drinking the milk so happily and she just like that put me down and ran away. He didn't know why she ran away. He picked up a big heavy uh, pestle, the thing you use for crushing uh, spices. He picked that up and there were several mutki holding curd. He picked that up and he just smashed them. And he went out. He, he actually went to the neighbor's house. So after smashing that, he goes out. He sneaks into the neighbor's house and he grabs another pot of curd and he takes it outside and he sits on this big rock and all the monkeys come and he's feeding the monkeys out of that pot of butter. So now mother, she comes back from taking the milk off and she sees all these matkis are, are smashed and she knows this is my kanha who did this, definitely. And now mother also, you see, in these divine leelas, although there's only prem, there's only divine bliss, Yet, it manifests sometimes as a divine annoyance, divine anger, divine jealousy. You see in these different leelas, sometimes it happens. It doesn't, don't attribute material qualities to it though. It's all happening in the field of divine love, in the field of divine leelas. So there's no actual material anger, there's no material jealousy, material annoyance. It's not like that. It's just a manifestation in these leelas, how it plays out. So mother thought, today I'm not going to let him get away with this. 
and she started looking for him. Now Krishna was sitting outside on this big rock with his, he was, you know, happily feeding the monkeys, but he knew mother was going to be coming for him. So he's looking around carefully all the directions and he's handing it out to the monkeys. But mother was very quick as well, wise. So she came from right behind him. And she was meaning to grab hold of him. And just when she got close, Krishna saw her and he hopped off and started running. And she, today she said, you're not getting away from me. So she actually chased him. So little Krishna is scurrying away and mother, Mother Yashoda, is following. And she's getting closer and closer, but she's also getting more and more tired. And when Krishna saw that she was getting too tired, then he slowed down enough that she caught him. So she said, Today, Lala, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. I'm very upset. You smashed the... You're, you're being so naughty. And most of the time, my motherly feelings overflow and... Uh, I don't give you any kind of punishment, but today I cannot let you get away with this. So he brought, she brought Krishna and tied him up to the ukhal, the big, huge uh, pot they use for pounding the grain. And she tied him up there. So a Paramahans passing by, seeing this situation, imagine what he's thinking. This is a jnani saint who sees God as formless or meaning doesn't see God but just conceives or experiences God as formless and now he passes by the house of Nanda Baba and he sees his Brahm his formless God that he couldn't catch <laughs> in thousands of lifetimes of chasing him through the various uh, branches of the Vedas he sees his formless Brahm tied to the ukal by one lady and he exclaimed Yashodaya samakapi devata nasti bhutale ulukhale yaya baddham muktido mukti michati he says the giver of liberation today I saw him begging for his own liberation such is the greatness of Prem. There's no other way to understand it. How could Supreme God be tied up by a soul? Naraji came down one time. He thought, oh, Supreme God Krishna has descended on the earth planet. I want to see what he's up to. So he came and he came to the house of Nanda Baba and Yashoda. And the scene he saw when he entered amazed him. He saw Krishna tugging on Maya's sari. What did he want? He wanted to get into her lap. He just wanted to be in her lap and have her hold him. Young Krishna. And what was Maya's response? Lala, not right now. I have house I have chores to do, I have housework to do. You let go of my son. She's trying to make his little hand let go and push him away. And he's starting to cry and stomp his feet on the ground. But she's still and you know what you know what he's doing? 
He's trying to get a hold of her and get her to look into his eyes because he knows if she looks in my eyes, she won't be able to resist. And mother knows as well, so she's looking away and trying to release his grasp. So Krishna, being desiring so much to get into her lap, was actually just rolling on the ground like a little child will do when they don't get their way, throwing his hands and feet about and crying. Now Naraji was amazed and he thought, which one is God? I thought I had heard that Supreme God had come in the form of male, but here I'm confused because it looks like the female must be God. Because he's crying to get into her lap. That's what a soul does, right? A soul cries to get into God's lap. But then he said, no, 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 I know that Krishna came in his form with bluish complexion as a young boy. So that must be God. Look how the tables have turned. After the, after the bhakti receives that divine bhakti, now instead of the soul crying to get into God's lap, God is crying to get into the soul's lap. Such is the greatness of Vatsalyabhav. Now, don't think that this is a difficult thing to attain. You see, bhakti is bhakti, no matter what bhao you adopt. If you desire to experience that relationship with Krishna, adopt vatsalya bhao. <clears throat> Do devotion to him with those feelings, and that will purify your heart, and when you become God-realized, he will award that relationship to you forever. You can become just like Mother Yashoda. One day, <clears throat> Krishna was stealing butter in his own house. Imagine someone whose father owns 900,000 cows. Does he have to steal butter? <laughs> no, he doesn't. But he does it as part of his leela. Shunye chorayatah swayam nijagrihe Hainam. He says, because he sees his reflection in the, uh, in the pillar. Little Krishna, he's got this pot of butter and he's just starting to eat it, but because the, the pillars are made of jewels in Nanda Baba's house, so he sees his own reflection and he thinks it's another little boy who's come into the house and he's he's frightened that he's going to tell on him and he'll get in trouble with mother so he says listen brother I'll make a deal with you I'll give you half my share okay you you can have half the butter and I'll have half and neither of us will tell Maya okay so then he started feeding you know taking and putting butter in the in the boy's mouth in the reflection and then taking one for himself and one for the little boy and meanwhile mother comes around the corner and sees this going on and she's just drowned she's watching this leela and she's absorbed in the ras of seeing krishna in this innocent state but then krishna realizes maya is there so he says Oh, 
मद्वारणम नमनुते ममरोष भाजी he says mother you see this little boy here he entered the house to steal butter you've been blaming me for the butter that goes missing but now you see who the real culprit is he comes here every day and steals butter I tried to tell him not to I wave my fist at him he just waves his fist back to me he shows me such an attitude I make an angry face he shows me an angry face he doesn't listen to anything I say mother so now you know I'm not the greedy one here he is so again mother was beside herself. She could only say Balihar on such a sweet, loving Leela of Bal Krishna. Now, even though this relationship, as you can see, affords a lot of closeness with Krishna, yet even between mother and child, there's still some formality, a little bit. But the last bhav, Madhuri bhav, that eliminates all the remaining formality. As I explained to you yesterday, Madhurya Bhav includes the feelings of all the other Bhav. It includes Dasya Bhav. So, think of it with a worldly example. Although Madhurya Bhav is not the same as a husband and wife relationship, but you can understand it's something like that, that the husband and wife sometimes serve each other sometimes they're friends sometimes they behave like each other's parents like if the wife is you know giving roti and the husband says uh, no 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 bus 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 what you don't eat enough nowadays here have some more like a mother would do right so but then they have the madhuri bhav exceeds all of that so it includes all of the friendship and serving and feelings of vatsalya prem all of that is included in this priyatam relationship but it's not again you can't attribute material qualities to it although i'm using material examples to describe it and that's the best we can do in the beginning in our meditation as well is to use that example and apply those feelings to our relationship with krishna yet it's something much beyond that you see the best example the highest example of madhuri bhav is the gopis of braj the gopis actually felt no separation between them and krishna it's like sometimes the gopis didn't know because they for them they experienced krishna everywhere so they didn't know where krishna began and where they where he ended and where they began where they where they were and where krishna was it was like a feeling of total oneness and a perfect feeling of selflessness tat sukha sukhitvam naraji says that those gopis thought only of making krishna happy they never thought of their own happiness when he was asked to describe prem he said yatha braj gopika naam says the gopis are the only example and what was the love of the gopis like for krishna he said 
There is no example. I'm sorry, I can't explain it to you because there is no example in this world. Because in the world, we have, there's always some kind of selfishness with our love. See, take one example from the Bhagavatam. Yat te sujat charanam buruham staneshu bhita shanai priyadadhi mahikarkasheshu the gopis are saying to Krishna when he disappeared during Maharas and they were looking for him in the jungle. They decided to stop looking and come back. Why? Because they were seeing that, oh, there are so many sharp pebbles and stones and thorns and branches here on the ground in the jungle and Krishna's walking barefoot through this. No, no, no. If we keep following him, he may go deeper and deeper. We, we have to come back. We can't bear the thought of him, see they gave an example, they said, Krishna, those same feet, those same lotus feet of yours that you go out grazing the cows with barefoot every day, those feet are so soft that if we've been away from you for a long time and we have a very, that fire of viraha in our chest, so to calm that down, we put the sole of your foot against our chest like that. And that calms down that fire of viraha. But when we do that, we do it very gently so that nothing should feel uncomfortable to your foot. Now imagine, imagine in the world, let's say a child went missing for three or four days. A young child and then got found and that child comes running into the mother's arms so the mother felt separation from her child and now upon meeting the child think of how much happiness she feels however much separate however much pain there was in separation that much happiness she's going to feel in meeting the child and when she meets the child she'll squeeze him why? Because she's getting so much happiness out of meeting her child. She might squeeze too hard even. Why? Because she's feeling happy and she wants to feel the child so close. She squeezes and the child squirms and says, Mom, what are you doing? See, she lost sight of her own child's happiness because she was experiencing her happiness. This is just an example of how there's always some kind of selfishness in our own love in the world. But the gopis, do you know what their pain of separation is like from Krishna? It's described in the Bhagavatam that every moment of separation for them was like a yug, meaning hundreds of thousands of years. How is that possible? Well, think about it. The more you love something, the more you love someone, the greater the pain of separation is going to be if you're separated from that person. So how much happiness do the gopis experience in Milan with Krishna? Unlimited. So how much would be their pain of separation? Also unlimited. So just like uh, 
when you're in pain, time seems to stretch out, doesn't it? It takes longer and longer. And when you're enjoying something, time flies by. So for those gopis, their longing to meet Krishna is so great. That viraha is so strong that every moment is like hundreds of thousands of years for them. Yet, when they do meet with Krishna, they're still conscious of his happiness first. That I'm putting your charan here, but she's aware of his comfort first. She would never press too hard. Imagine, who could maintain consciousness even in such a situation when you've been separated from Krishna and then you get to meet him? We can't imagine. Yet, this is how the prem of those gopis is described in the Bhagavatam. This is Madhurya Bhav, but it's the height of Madhurya Bhav. There are actually three levels. There is C class of Madhurya Bhav, B class of Madhurya Bhav, and A class of Madhurya Bhav. So the gopis are A class. What is B class and C class and which of those should we aim for, I'll describe for you tomorrow. And we'll finish today with some Nam Sankirtan.